This Thursday, we will be meeting here as usual. The next Thursday, the following Thursday, on September the 16th, we will not have Bible class here, and I encourage everyone to sign up for the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics at dispensationalcouncil.org and watch the... uh, there, there, there's going to be a panel discussion. Andy Woods, Mark Hitchcock, uh, who else is on it? George Gunn. George Gunn. That's the one I keep forgetting in Wayne House. So that's going to be a good, uh, a good panel and talking about and probably some different questions that will come from the audience. But this is, again, one of the scholarly groups, but they've opened it up to just about anybody since they're, we're live streaming and some people can't travel, some people won't travel. And uh, I know at least one speaker, Bruce Baker, who will be speaking uh, Thursday. I can't remember if it's before lunch or right after lunch, but Bruce has a very interesting paper. But Bruce, because of his ALS, is not coming out anymore either. And now I don't think I've told you this. You need to really pray for Bruce. He's, he, you know, he gra- it's a gradual decline. The doctors gave him three years, seven years ago. And now he has leukemia. So we need to continue to pray for him, but he continues to serve the Lord and write papers, and he's working on a book. And you know, until the Lord won't let him anymore, he's going to continue to do that, which is a great testimony and encouragement to all of us pastors that meet together on Friday mornings. But anyway, that's September 16th. You can go to dispensationalcouncil.org and sign up for the then they'll send you the the link we'll probably send out the link too then um there will be the men's prayer breakfast on saturday the 18th at 7:30 a.m. and uh we've been having we had a gr- great group the other day we have some good discussions a lot of great material as we're studying through this book on how should we then live? And it relates a lot to what I've been teaching in the church history courses. So it's it's very uh, pertinent to what we're going through in our country today to understand how we got here and why we got to where we are uh, today. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in prayer for Brett Nasworth. I was texting with Brett. I didn't hear from him yet. I text with him once or twice every day to check on him. Didn't hear from him at all yesterday. I heard from him today. He's back in the hospital. The doctor believes he probably has uh, pneumonia again, and he's uh, he's never really been able to get off of oxygen. He's or keep his oxygen level up over ninety. You know, he sits up, it drops, things like that. So please pray that he can get off the oxygen, as well as for this new ministry DM two is putting out. Bob Beaver had a horrible situation occur as his incision opened, and I'm not going to describe it, but it wasn't good, and they had to put him back in the hospital, and he will be there for another week. So we need to really be in prayer for Bob and Roberta. And then Dee Friel still needs prayer for oxygen and strength and uh, uh, finding a good rehab hospital. And we have a couple of other people who are dealing with things related to age and cancer and COVID. You know some of them, and we need to be in prayer for all of these people and especially for our uh, for our nation. This is what is so, so very, very important. 
Scripture says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord and the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's have a few moments of silent prayer as we prepare for, get ourselves spiritually prepared for class tonight, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful and glad and just have such joy that we can cast our burdens upon you because you care for us. And you are the one who sustains us. You are the one who watches out for us, protects us, holds us. You hold us in your hand. And Father, we are so grateful that we are, do not, we are not left to try to navigate the issues in this life apart from you, and that enables us to relax, have a relaxed mental attitude, to trust in you as we cast our burden upon you. And Father, especially we pray for these that we have mentioned this evening. For Brett, Father, I just pray that uh, that you can heal him, strengthen him, give the doctors wisdom in relation to what's going on with his lungs, his recovery from uh, from COVID. And Father, we just pray that you would strengthen his wife and his family that they would all see this as an opportunity to just trust you. And you've used him in such great ways in his ministry as he served you, and we just pray that that will continue. But if not, Father, I know he's told me several times he is ready ready when you are. But, Father, we pray that he, his ministry might continue. And, Father, we pray, too, for Bob Beaver. We pray that you would just strengthen him and also give the doctors wisdom as he heals and that he may be able to uh, go home sooner than they expect and also to alleviate uh, the suffering, the discomfort, everything that relates to what's going on and that he can do what needs needs to be done so that they can return to giving him uh, solid food, letting him eat. So, Father, we pray for these, for for DeFrios and for others that we know in this congregation who are... Uh, facing uh, COVID, others that we know about who have been exposed to COVID. And Father, we pray for those we know in the extended congregation as well that are dealing with these issues and that you might strengthen them and keep them well and that they might respond well to the medication that they're taking. Father, we pray for us that we might keep our focus upon you and we're just rejoice in the way you use this congregation here and around the world and ministering to so many in so many different ways that many here are just unaware of. But you are working, and there's evidence of that that just is amazing. And, Father, we thank you for all these things and open your word to us tonight as we study. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I don't get an opportunity to go to a funeral very often that I'm not involved in. And I went to one this afternoon for Alex Monzone's dad, and I only met him on two or three occasions, quiet, 
but you just knew that this was a man of great uh, of great strength and i did not know all that was involved in his uh, biography in his life but apparently before he was married and had children he was an undercover dea agent infiltrated cartels and had you know quite some amazing adventures uh, later, he was, um, after he retired from the DEA, he went into the Federal's Marshal Service, and I can't remember which was which, but at some point he was the head of one or the other agency's office in New Orleans, and then later, and I think with the Marshal Service, he was the head of the office here in Houston. And as I sat there hearing all this, I said, you know, I just meet so many people who've had such remarkable uh, adventures in life. And they have made such remarkable accomplishments in life. But I never hear about it until they die. And then you hear about it at at the memorial service or funeral. And you say, boy, I wish I had known all that. I would have loved to have had some conversations with them about that. And so it was just it was just good to hear that. And Alex did a fabulous job talking about his, his dad and giving the gospel. He just... You know, I just love it when I see a young man who's been coming to this church be able to get up in front of a large crowd. There may have been six, seven, eight hundred people there, and be able to speak very clearly and um, precisely about the gospel. But also, he told a story that I want to tell. He said that one of the things that always impressed him about his father was that he was a man of prayer. And when he was a boy growing up, he would wake up in the you know, after he'd gone to sleep, wake up, and he'd go to the bathroom or go into the kitchen or whatever. And he would see his dad in the living room, lights were out, and his dad would be kneeling by his chair in prayer. And that that was the example that was set for him by his father. And I just was very, here was a man who had the kind of life that he had and dealt with the scum of the earth and what gave him stability in life through all of that was was he was his Alex's father was a pastor's kid and he got that from the training of his father and it was just a, what a great testimony to those around him to his family and to the angels all right open your bibles to judges chapter 3 judges chapter 3 and tonight we're going to look at when Lefty killed Fatty and escaped through the outhouse. Now, this is one of my favorite titles and one of my favorite episodes in Scripture and in the book of, of Judges. And one of the reasons is there is so much humor in this that you just miss in the translation. We've often hear the phrase, well, somebody cracks a joke or says something, and you say, well, you just can't, or they say something in a foreign language and it's funny, but you can't translate it. Well, some of that is what goes on all through the book of Judges. When I taught this before, I began to realize there are so many puns, word plays, paranomasias. There are so many ways in which God the Holy Spirit is using the writers of Scripture that through these word plays and puns and making fun of the enemy, making fun of people, um, uh, that you get a different perspective on God and on the Holy Spirit when you recognize the rich, deep humor 
that goes throughout all of this. And I, I observed this as we went through Samuel, that that the language and the descriptions through through Samuel are quite coarse at times and quite graphic. And usually translator, no, I won't say usually, they never translate this the way it should be translated because it's written in the language of people who work on the farm. See, we live in such a sanitized time now that people don't want to talk about certain things. And, and we, we sanitize odors out of our life and we sanitize uh, lots of things. We never see somebody die. We never see kids get born. We never see these things. They're not. The, and, and for much of history, these are the things that were present in everybody's life. You knew that you, your mom was probably born on the bed that she's giving birth to your siblings on, and she's going to die in that bed. And that the next generation will inherit that same bed. And the cycle of life goes through, and so you understand these these realities of life and the hardships and the joys and the suffering and the good times uh, because you're not distancing yourself from them. And we're, we live in such an era, and that's why we have a generation of spoiled kids coming up that don't know how to deal with things that might be a little offensive. And I can just imagine that with using this title... That there are some people that make think that, well, that just isn't a very nice title. You're poking fun of somebody who is weight-challenged and maybe uh, intellectually challenged. And that's part of the fun because the Holy Spirit's doing this. That's why this is such a great title is because this is a ribald episode. And the Holy Spirit is not pulling any punches as as we go through this, because God really doesn't take into account human feelings. He's not afraid that he might offend somebody. Look at what Jesus says to the high and mighty self-righteous Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers is the way it's translated, but it basically means they're the seed of the serpent. And we all know who the serpent is. So Jesus wasn't, uh, didn't care about, he wasn't trying to purposefully offend people, but he wasn't going to hold back the truth because somebody might get offended or take offense. And in the Old Testament, God is not sensitive at all towards making fun of the false gods. We have these great examples of Elijah up on Mount Carmel. And here he's challenged the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah and to a, to a contest. Well, uh, Baal was the god of lightning and the god of fire. So he said, okay, let's have a little contest here. We're going we're gonna to build a huge altar here, and you all pre- uh, prepare your sacrifice, but you can't light the match. You've got to pray to Baal and let him light the match. And so they would... They would dance and they would cut themselves and they'd do all kinds of things in order to get Baal's attention. And Elijah would make fun of them. This this is sanctified sarcasm. Sanctified making fun of people. 
because God knows their, their, what they believe is a lie, and people are going to go to the lake of fire for eternity because of it. And he makes fun of them. And, and Elijah would sit there and joke and say, well, do it a little louder. Jump up and down more. Maybe he went off and he's in the, he's in the bathroom. He's in the outhouse. You've you got to get his attention. Well, where is he? Why won't he answer you? And then, of course, when it's his turn... He just has uh, the, the, the people bring up buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of water, and that was a lot of work to haul it up that hill. Those of you who have been there on Mount Carmel have seen that that was a long way down to the uh, Kishon and back up. And so they soaked it, absolutely soaked the sacrifice, and all he did was he just called upon God to accept the sacrifice, and then you just had this huge firebomb come down of heaven and everything is just vaporized and you could have that the, the legend is that they could see it from 50 or 75 miles away and in israel that's most of israel heard it and saw it you think of the sonic boom the thunder that would come along with that lightning they heard it all over the land and that that's how god is and this is one of those kinds of episodes God isn't trying to be sensitive or understanding about Eglon, and he couldn't do anything. That's a genetic problem he has. That's why he's so fat and corpulent. You know, he's not trying to understand what his emotions might be. He's not trying to uh, figure out, well, maybe his problem is he just has low self-esteem, and he's fat, and he's, you know, we just have to be careful with him. And that's why he's overcompensating by going out and conquering the nation of Israel. And so we just need to understand him better. Uh, that's not how God operates. That's not divine viewpoint. And what we have today is people who are so hypersensitive, and, and then they're catered to. And that is not biblical. That's not I mean, I'm not saying you need to be obnoxious, but you don't cater to somebody else's false values and their uh, false sense of self. You just, it, you just go past that. But the point of all of this isn't just the humor, and God isn't making fun of Eglon just to poke fun at him. There is a specific reason that God is mocking him that God is showing and he's highlighting through this story that, that Eglon is not only physically, uh, physically corpulent, but that he is mentally obtuse and that he's dense. And not only is he dense, but the people who are helping him, you read through the story, they're not real bright either. And so any Jew, any Israelite that's listening to this is just going to be laughing and howling and pointing fingers at him and what a dunce that Eglon was and he got, he got fooled and he's just some old fat slob. But wait a minute. God wants him to think at a di- deeper level because what God is saying is, yeah, that fat, corpulent dunce, fatty on the throne is the guy who defeated you. If fatty, if that obtuse, corpulent dunce could defeat you, what does that say about you? And the reason you could be defeated is because of your spiritual obtuseness and because you have been worshiping these idols that are nothing more than inanimate wood and stone and metal. 
They can't do anything. If they want to move anywhere, you have to pick them up and carry them. Uh, They can't talk. Uh, Look at what you allowed to happen in your life. And then we notice that there may be some application of that. Look at Psalm 2. You don't have to turn there, but look. look, This just tells us another example of God mocking people. This is looking forward to what happens in the time of Armageddon, in the tribulation. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. All the kings of the earth, all the nations are counseling together, trying to figure out how they can defeat God. Remember in the sixth seal, all the kings of the earth and the generals and the leaders and the mighty men are all hiding in the in the caves and they want to pull the earth over themselves because there's this mighty meteor shower and these enormous earthquakes and they know that they are hiding from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb and they're shaking their fist at him. They are not about to turn to God. And this is the scenario here. They have taken counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us, because that's the mentality of rebellious man, is they don't want those guidelines. They don't want God's commandments. They don't want to listen to God. They don't want to pay attention to God. God just doesn't want us to do what we want to do. He won't let us have any fun. And verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord mocks them. God mocks the mockers. He makes fun of arrogant, fallen man. And, and, And that's the point of what is going on here. In his commentary on Judges, Daniel Block who is uh, very good in the original languages and has done a very fine job in this commentary. It's in the New American Commentary series for those of you, and I know pastors listen to me and they may have Logos on their their, um, uh, computers. And New American Commentary series, everybody's premillennial that I know of except for Block. They're all supposed to be premillennial, but this guy is so brilliant in Hebrew and he's so good in Judges that they allowed him to write that commentary on Judges because there's no prophecy in Judges. So none of his uh, uh, amillennialism pokes through. None of his figurative uh, allegorical interpretation pokes through. And he says, describing this, he says, while the sequence of episodes is clear, the narrator is obviously not interested merely in chronicling historical events. With effective employment of ambiguity, irony, satire, hyperbole, and caricature, he sketches a literary cartoon that pokes fun at the Moabites and brings glory to God. In fact, the account is so polemical and coarse that many scholars deny any historical basis to it. See... Unfortunately, we have too many Christians who just are not in real touch with a lot that's going on today. And what we see today is so parallel to this. Some people say, I'm sure the Israelites were saying, how could God let us be conquered by such a fat, ugly, corpulent slob who's such a dense dunce? 
well, how in the world could God allow us to have a president get elected who is demented at, at, the, at best, maybe, maybe it's worse than that, who is incompetent, and if you follow the history of the legislations that he has backed going back to the mid-'70s, he has been one of the most evil senators in our history. Why in the world would God permit this to happen? And what is God saying? God's saying the same thing about us that he was saying about the Israelites. You think this guy's an idiot? You elected him. Who's the idiot? You're getting what you deserve. And this is God's commentary on the arrogance of American, uh, the Americans who think that they are so brilliant that they can change people's gender, biological gender. People who are so brilliant that they can change the absolutes for marriage. People that are so brilliant that they can try to rewrite and remake reality uh, just because they don't like it in the arrogance of their own lives. And God is puts someone like Joe Biden in the presidency to poke fun at us. Because we're not any of those things anymore. We may have been at one time, 75, 100, 200 years ago, but we're not anymore. And the reason we're not anymore is the same reason that Israel is not, was not anymore. is because we have been worshiping, I mean we as a culture, not we as West Houston Bible Church, but we as a culture have been worshiping at these self-made idols the idols that are generated by our own sin nature. They're, they may be more abstract and sophisticated than the wooden phallic symbols of the ancient world, but they are just as much a product of people's sin nature, and they in, enslave the culture to that, uh, that sin nature. And so what has happened at this time in this episode is we're not just seeing the imbecility of of Eglon and the Moabites, we're seeing the imbecility of God's people, of Israel and their idolatry. So this lesson is a lesson for all of us as we'll see as we go through uh, all of the um, all of the episodes in the book of Judges. So we have gone through and focused on this organization, the introduction up through 3.6. Then the center section is on the paganization of the leadership that increasingly will reflect the attributes of the culture around them. And it goes in order from Othniel, who is the best. Now we're at Ehud, the second one, until we get to Samson, who's the worst. And then we'll see these horrible, horrific, graphic episodes at the end of Judges, or the paganization of the priests and the paganization of the people. So we have looked at Othniel, the first judge, in verses 7 through 11, and despite the fact that Israel uh, had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and that they had not truly turned back to God, Nevertheless, God in his grace provided a deliverer in the person of Othniel 
And then the conclusion is an emphasis on the grace of God. In Judges 3.11, Then the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It is the grace of God that's provided that, that respite for them for these 40 years. When we get to the conclusion of Eglon, they're going to get 80 years. But in between, they are going to be uh, enslaved, uh, enslaved to um, Eglon uh, for... Um, I think it's for 18 years. I couldn't find it right away. For 18 years. So we see the grace of God. And then what happens? We see that divine indictment again. In Judges 3-7 with the first cycle with Othniel, we saw that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's repeated again in verse 12. But I want you to compare and contrast the two statements. Because in 3.7, it describes what that evil is. They forgot, that is, they ignored, they willfully forgot, they willfully set aside everything they knew about God and what he had done for Israel. They ignored him, and then they enslaved themselves to the worship of the fertility gods and the Baalim and the Asherot. So this is the divine indictment as it's laid out there. I think I have a slide that must have gotten out of order just a minute. Let me let me get that back in order. There we go. Okay, and then we see in uh, 12a, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't explain what that was. It's already been explained in detail earlier in chapter 3. It's explained in detail with the beginning of the first cycle But what I'm going to point out is it's not explained in detail here because the action at the very beginning is going to move fairly rapidly. And then it's going to slow down. And the writer is doing that intentionally so that we're going to slow down and focus on what's going on uh, with Ehud starting in uh, verse 16. So we have God's grace, then Israel, and we see this cycle of the judges where they're disobedient, which leads to the discipline from the Lord, and then this leads to deliverance. They cry out, and that's what will happen here. They cry out to the Lord, but as I pointed out, there's not an indication that they have turned to the Lord. They're just screaming in discomfort and misery because of divine discipline, but God in his grace delivers them Anyway, and then after they are delivered, then they go back, and this is the ongoing cycle, and there are six of these in Judges. First, Othniel. Othniel is followed by Ehud. Ehud is going to be followed by Deborah. These are the major judges. Shamgar is one verse, comes in between, but a significant verse and a significant interlude. Then Gideon, then Jephthah, and then Samson, each worse than the one before. So the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's a map that gives us insight into um, the geography 
Up in the north here is the uh, Sea of Galilee, and the south here is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Off to the left, to the west, is the Mediterranean Sea. The circle here is around Jericho. That's where the action takes place in this episode, is in the City of Palms. That's Jericho. Jericho is down, it's below sea level, but it's not as far below sea level as the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about 1,200, 1,300 feet below sea level. Jericho is probably about 600, 500, 600 feet below sea level. So from Jericho, uh, you have a, about 15-mile hike uphill to get to Jerusalem. It's not far as the crow flies, but if you're walking uphill, it's, it's a long distance. And this is in a significant area. Why is this so significant? I have to put our thinking caps on here. Israel under Moses comes up from the south around this, the area south of the Dead Sea is called the Arabah. They come across the Arabah above the Gulf of Aqaba, and they come up on the, uh, on the Transjordan side, and they're told by God, don't mess with the Edomites or the Moabites because they are your cousins. Remember, Ammon and Moab are the sons of, uh, of Lot by his daughters because they got him drunk and he got both of them pregnant, and they wanted to have sons by him. So those, they are related, they're relatives. So they're left there, and now they're a problem. When they, when they got to the crossing of the Jordan, then you, uh, Moses went up on Mount Nebo, and God took him to heaven. We have that described by Jude in the book of Jude, that there's a fight over the body of, of Moses uh, between the devil and Michael, and the Israelites are going to cross. There's a miracle there. God is going to part the waters. The, it's in the spring. Remember, they just had Passover. It's in the spring. There's snow melt coming off of Mount Hermon. The, the Jordan River is swollen, and so they can't walk. And God is going to have another miracle, like the parting of the Red Sea, and they cross over, and after they cross over, they go, it's just a couple of miles to the area around Jericho, which is one of the oldest inhabited cities post-flood. And they're at a place they call Gilgal. We don't know exactly where that is. They are going to recommit to the covenant. And there all of the uh, male that are born in the wilderness will be circumcised as a sign of their recommitment to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And that is what we're going to see reference to Gilgal in this passage. So all of this geography is important. But here at this strategic location of Jericho is where uh, the Moabites have crossed over, and they, this is the base for the headquarters of Eglon, the king of Moab. And so we read in verse 12b, So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So twice there's the statement about Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord, but it isn't ex explained as such. 
And so we see the, um, uh, this, this statement of God's discipline. He strengthens Eglon. The word for strengthening is here on the right. It is chazak, and it is in the PL stem, which means that it's intensified. It means to make someone strong, to strengthen them, to give them courage, or to provide military strength, military ability. So it is the Lord who enabled the corpulent dunce to defeat Israel not because he was, had great military tactics or because he was such a great general, but because God is using him to defeat and uh, dominate Israel. And then his name, Eglon, is another pun. Because the word Eglon is a paranomasia, it's a play on words for the Hebrew word Egel. And Egel and Eglon sound alike. They're very similar. And the word Egel refers to a young, fatted calf. A young, fat calf that would be just ripe for sacrifice. And the reason I say that is because uh, when we look at this, and oh yeah, also to point out that it is based on this, this word agel is based on the same consonants as agol. G and L are the main uh, uh, consonants, plus at the beginning there's an aleph, which is usually represented by what, uh, by like a, what looks like an apostrophe to us when we bring it over into English, but that's a consonant, it's not a vowel. Aleph is, we think, oh that's an A, no. It is a consonant, it's a soft breathing mark. And so this word has the idea uh, at root meaning is it something round or, or rotund. And so the Lord is going to strengthen Eglon, and whenever they would think about that, they would have a lot of coarse jokes about Eglon, uh, the fatted calf, Eglon, the fat king, things of that, uh, of that nature. And so we're told that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord's righteousness is the standard that's expressed through the Mosaic law. And so the Israel is rebelling against God. God has entered into this covenant with them so that under this theocracy, he is the true king of Israel. So anytime they disobey the law, it is an act of treason against their king. And so now God is bringing them um, in discipline. So we have this thing going on here with the uh, pun on the name Eglon uh, that is used in a very pejorative manner in order to get people to to think about this, that he's just, in other words, he's just fatty. And so they're going to, uh, they're, they're make, he's making fun of him. Now, what's going on, also what's going on here is the need for, uh, God to bring this judgment on Eglon because he's worse than the Israelites. And, and the Israelites have to learn humility because they have thought of themselves with pride that they are God's chosen people, they have a covenant with God, and yet they have turned their back on God. And we have the same kind of thing going on in our country. We have, uh, in America, we are very proud of our history. Conservatives, liberals may not so much, some do. 
But they're proud that they're Americans because look at all of the things that we are doing, our social consciousness and all of these other things, whichever side of the ledger you're on, left or right, you are, there are things that you are proud of, uh, about about America. And yet we're not humble. We've not humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And therefore God is laughing at us. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And that's quoted in 1 Peter 5.5 at the end of the verse. God resists, or he stands against. He is opposed to the proud. And that is a problem we have in this nation. And we are being humbled by God right now. And we're being humbled in the same way that Israel is was humbled by an incompetent leader who is... T- taken control. And the issue is we, as a nation, we have to recognize that that God is doing this and we have to turn back to him as a nation because there can be political solutions, but they are only surface solutions. They're important. I'm not denying that. We have to be involved politically or we are done for. We may be done for anyway, but that's a means to an end. The real problem is arrogance. And Christians are, have a level of arrogance in this country that, uh, that is immeasurable. I was reading an article I was sent this morning via email that is charting the way the evangelical church in America is. Every year they are moving closer and closer to validating homosexual marriage. You know, we're going to get comfortable with sin instead of standing up, getting involved, electing officials who will do something at the legislative and judicial level by appointing the right kind of judges. We're just going to assimilate and get comfortable with the sins of the of the rebellious antinomian left. Eglon is described here as a very fat man. That may be offensive to some people, but you just have to reorient what offends you and what doesn't. This is God speaking, This so you can't be offended. You can't think that this is being tacky or coarse. God speaking. He's a very fat man. He's making an issue out of this. The Hebrew word here is ma'od bari, and that means very simply what it says, a very or an extremely fat man, a corpulent man. A man who finds it difficult to move around because he is just so enormous. Psalm 119.70 uses this word, and there we read their heart. This is an indictment of Israel. Their heart is as fat as grease, talking about the unbelievers, the unrighteousness. Look at that imagery, their heart. That is, their thinking is fat. So fatness is used not only to speak of physical fatness, but mental fatness, obtuseness. Then another word that we find that is used later in Judges, that's translated fat as well, is used in Judges 3.22 after uh, Ehud stabs and drives his dagger, which is about the size of a buoy knife, deep all the way through, penetrates all the way through his his fat belly. Uh, it's described there, and the fat closed over the blade, so he couldn't pull it out. But the word there for fat is kelev, 
So early we have Eglon, which sounds like a, uh, the word for a fatted calf that is prepared for sacrifice. And here you have the word fat used, which is the word that is used for sacrificial fat. Helev is used all the way through Leviticus. God's making a point here that now it's time for the sacrifice of Eglon so that he can free Israel. Freedom comes as a result of a sacrifice, and the sacrifice here is going to be the king of Moab. So we read, going back to verse 13, 12, remember, says that Eglon is strengthened by God against Israel, and now it describes it, that he, that is, talking about Eglon, he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek. Now that is a strong, powerful statement. Now the sons of Ammon, and it's usually referred to that way in the scripture, the sons of Ammon, not using the Hebrew equivalent of the Ammonites, but sons of Adam, to make the reader think back, where did Ammon come from? He came from Lot, because Lot's daughters got him drunk, and he committed incest, and Moab and um, Ammon are the results of that uh, incest. And Amalek, who are the Amalekites? These are the ultimate anti-Semites that their thread runs through the Bible. You look at, uh, they were a roving band of marauding land pirates that faced off against Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. And there's this huge battle, and and Israel doesn't stand a chance because the Amalekites are are, are a nation of warriors, violent, hostile uh, warriors who will just rip them up. But God is greater than any army, and he provides a victory. But he's going to demonstrate the importance of faith in a very visual way. And so Moses has to stand up on the hillside where he's in view of all of the Israelite army, and he has to hold his arms up. Notice there's a visual here of a cross, of Christ on the cross. He has to hold his arms up. And as long as his arms are up, as long as he's trusting God, then they're going to win. And then he gets tired, and, and he begins to lower, and they begin to get defeated and defeated. So he gets Aaron on one side and her on the other side, and they hold up his arms until they defeat the Amalekites. So the Amalekites are like the, the, the number one enemy. In fact, today, when you talk to Jews, they use that term Amalek to refer to anybody who is anti-Semitic. Hitler and the Nazis were Amalek. And if you go back into the Old Testament and you see that the problem with Saul was that God told him to destroy every man, woman, and child and, and all of their animals and, uh, of Amalek, and Saul didn't do it. And David came close to it, but we don't know if he actually got all of them because there's this character that ends up in the book of Esther, and he has worked his way into a position of authority next to the king, and he hates the Jews. And his name is Haman, the Agagite. Who was Agag? Agag was the king of the Amalekites that, that, that uh, 
Saul did not uh, decapitate. He didn't kill him. And so Samuel had to come in and grab Saul's sword, and he decapitated Agag himself. So Haman is called the Agagite. So is he a descendant? That's the suggestion. He's a descendant of Agag, and he just hates the Jews, and he has tricked the king into signing a law to declare a couple of days where it's going to be open season against all the Jews so that all the Persians can just slaughter all the Jews and there's going to be this huge propaganda campaign like the Arabs have and like the Nazis had that the Jews are evil people and get everybody all worked up so that when this day comes that it'll be open season and the Persians can kill all the Jews in Persia. And that's the whole purpose of Esther is to show that even though God is never mentioned in Esther, God is still providentially watching over and protecting, uh, protecting the Jews. And so Esther has uh, been picked by the king as he's marrying a new, a new queen. She's the new queen, and God has put her in that place for such a time as this. And her uncle Mordecai is going to tell her that when this news gets out, says, God's put you in that place and you need to rise to the occasion and go to the king, and and uh, you need to pray for wisdom and address the king. And so they go through the whole situation, and the king recognizes her when she goes in for an audience, and she asks, he asks what she can do, and she says, well, come, come to dinner. And she prepares this fabulous banquet, and she invites has him invite Haman to come. And Haman is just so full of himself that he thinks this is just wonderful. But God's laid an incredible trap for him. And what will happen through an interesting turn of events and a lot of irony and, and humorous things that take place is that the whole, everything gets turned against Haman and he thinks that he's the one who's going to get this great, great blessing from the king and the king's going to honor him. The king says has found out that Mordecai at one time in the past had uh, had heard of a, of, a, of, of a conspiracy against the king and they were going to kill him. And so uh, the king says, uh, discovers that he was never rewarded, but he saved his life. So now he's going to reward Mordecai, but he doesn't tell Haman who he's going to reward. So he tells Haman, yeah, what should I do for somebody who's really done a great favor for the king? And Haman thinks it's him, so he comes up with all these wonderful things that should be done. And then the king says, okay, so thus we will do for Mordecai. And Haman is, has already been convinced he's the one who's going to be elevated, so he had gallows built outside so they could hang Mordecai. And now the king finds out that he's done all that. Haman's the one, along with all of his sons, that get hung. And it's just a great turn of irony. Uh, but this is Amalek. So when you read this, and you read the sons of Ammon and the sons of Amalek, these are people who just, the, the Ammonites are bad, but Amalek shows up again and again and again as we go through Judges. They're in the background. They seem to be the, the ones who are manipulating the conspiracies to attack Israel. And so Moab gathers uh, this alliance, and he puts together with the Ammonites and the Amalekites and he goes to defeat Israel, and they possess the city of the palm trees. That's, that's Jericho. 
So now in this chart, just so we understand who these people are, I put together this chart on the, the genealogy of the Arabs. Where did they come from? So we have Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Shem is the progenitor of the Shemites, and his son is Arphaxad. His son, the great-grandson of Noah, is Eber, and then his son, great-great-grandson of Noah, is Peleg. And in Genesis uh, 10, it says, and the earth divided in the time of, excuse me, the time of Peleg. Now, a lot of people think that that refers possibly to the continental drift of, of the continents, a physical division. Others, and I think this is probably more, more correct, that Peleg is alive at the same time that the Tower of Babel takes place when uh, the confusion of tongues comes and the nations are divided. And that, that's very likely to be the best, best solution there. But one of his sons is Joktan, and in Genesis 10, it tells us that he is the progenitor of the 13 Arab tribes. See, because of what happens with Ishmael... Later, we think all the Arabs came from him, but 13 Arab tribes came from Yachtan. That Ishmael hasn't come, come around yet. So we have these 13 Arab tribes. And then Peleg's son is Nahor, who is going to be the progenitor of the Chaldeans. And his son is Terah, who is Abram's father. He has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And from Abram... You're going to get, because of Hagar, you're going to get Ishmael, who is the father of the Bedouin Arabs. And the, then he's going to, after Sarah dies, he marries Keturah, and he will have six sons from Keturah, and they also contribute to the line of the Arabs. And then Lot is going to have two sons, the Ammonites and the Moabites, and they are going to also be part of the Arab mix. And then you have uh, Esau, the brother of Jacob. He is the father of the Edomites and Amalek. And then um, Midian comes from the sons of Keturah. So that gives you a look at where the Arabs come from. They're not just from Ishmael. They are from all these different groups. And over the course of history, they've all intermarried and so all of the Arabs all relate back to these, to these groups. And there's this opposition between the Arabs and Israel. So in this episode, we're going to deal with the Ammonites, we deal with uh, the Amalekites, and we're dealing with Moab as these branches of the, of the Arab tribes. So back to our map here. So... Moab, Eglon has come up from the south. He's come into here to Jericho, and he's got an alliance with the Ammonites. And so they are moving, and they have oppressed Israel for 18 years. Now, why has this happened? This has happened very clearly because Israel has violated the law of God. In Leviticus 26 we read the five cycles or five stages of discipline. 
But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, it begins. If instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so uh, break my law, God says, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you uh, a sudden terror, consumption and fever that shall waste away the waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also. Also you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. Leviticus twenty six seventeen says, And I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. And so this is exactly what happens. And the sons of Israel will be enslaved to Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And we've seen this word avad several times already. I've, I've mentioned that, that it has the idea to work or to serve, or it can refer to slavery or to be enslaved, and it can even refer to, to worship. And then what happens? In Judges 3.15, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, then the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, and the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, I'm going to stop here tonight because we get into some really interesting things that are going on here in the, in the Hebrew because it has this statement that Ehud is a left-handed man. And we'll need to look at the end of Judges, which looks to us like it comes towards the end of the period, but most likely it's happening roughly about this same time, or maybe it's already happened. And we have this episode with the Benjamites, and there's this statement that they have these 700 choice men. Remember, they're choice men. They're selected because they have a certain talent. And the text says that they're left-handed. Now, how would you get 700 left-handed? There's some real issues going on here, and so we have to look at the Hebrew a little bit, and it helps us understand what the tactics are here and that this really isn't someone who's left-handed. And, uh, but he, he is and he isn't. It's an ambiguity in the text. Remember I said it's got these am- ambiguous things. It's got uh, satire. It has... Uh, mocking all of these different things. So we'll come back next week and we'll start up here on Judges uh, 3.15 and we'll go through the humorous episode as um, Lefty kills Fatty and then escapes through the outhouse. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon them, to be reminded that we as a nation may not have a covenant with you as Israel did, but nevertheless, we are in your world that you have created, in the universe that you have created, and that as nations under your providential uh, determination are are, uh, raised up, and they are torn down. And they're torn down because of their, their rebellion, their pride, their arrogance, their hostility to you. And we see this on every side. We see it in the visible church. We see it in the, those who are opposed to Christianity and opposed to religion. We see this just fragmenting this nation uh, at so many different levels. And, and many of us wonder, how in the world can we survive? And we cannot survive if we have completely rejected 
and ignored and, in fact, overturned the divine institutions. But we see that happening from the powers that be, even though vast numbers of the population are against this. And so we see that we are in crisis mode, and the only thing that can rescue us is your grace, and the only thing that will restore any level of stability is your word, and the problems that we have today did not come about in just a few decades. They came about really over the last 150 or 200 years, and it will take a couple of generations of positive volition to be restored uh, to a position of stability. And, Father, we pray that that might happen, but we know that if it doesn't, that we may go through some really horrible times. But there will be times of great glory because we witness your grace and the way you intervene in the lives of people and provide for people and strengthen believers. And so it will be a time to glorify you, and we just pray that we might have the our faith strengthened to survive in those circumstances. And we pray that as we continue that we might keep your word as a priority in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.